Happy December! This is Jay, and welcome to the Potstirrer Podcast. Today's episode is the public release of two bonus episodes. These were originally released on Patreon in May and June of 2019, but I'm combining the public release into one. This is my list of the top five terrible humans. Not all, but some of the terrible humans on this list have led us to the age of Donald Trump or contributed to the regime's horror. Since it has become increasingly clear that Joe Biden is the president-elect, having beaten Trump in a landslide, it seems fitting to share my personal list of top five terrible humans. This can serve as a reminder of sorts of how we ended up in the age of Trump, as the Biden presidency provides us with a reprieve as we are hopefully turning around America's descent into fascism. I hope you enjoy this episode. Recently, I traveled to my hometown of Detroit to visit family, and I had the opportunity to go downtown for the first time in quite a while. My brother took me to lunch for my birthday at Lafayette Coney Island, which has been around since forever, and it's pretty much a Detroit institution. They have the best Coney dogs, and before you ask, no, I'm not sponsored. They're just legit that good. But the thing that struck me when we went down there is the gentrification or revitalization downtown. With the addition of Little Caesars Arena, the new home of the Detroit Red Wings, there were a lot of new businesses interspersed with the old. Downtown was much busier than I remembered it even a few years ago, and definitely busier than it was when I grew up back in the 80s and 90s. Fancy, sharp-looking restaurants and stores, lots of pedestrians, a community garden, hipster-looking millennials, lots of traffic, and a shortage of street parking. It was nice to see the growth, but I truly hope that those who lived in Detroit through its lean years, its murder capital years, get some of the benefit too. I would really like to revisit the subject of Detroit in a future episode, which would most likely be a regular episode. Last year, I released a two-part series on how the issues that led to the decline of Detroit, mainly the lack of accountability and opportunity, intertwined with its racial past and are instructive to the United States as a whole. In the series, I spent a little bit of time talking about L. Brooks Patterson, longtime Oakland County executive and terrible human had a role in the decline of the city of Detroit. Now, back when I had cable, which was quite some time ago, I followed the career of political and sports commentator Keith Olbermann as he bounced around from ESPN to MSNBC to Al Gore's short-lived current channel, back to NBC to his internet show, and now he just posts to Twitter about baseball and shelter doggos. I'm sure I'm missing some of his other moves, but whatever can be said about Keith Olbermann and how he can be to work with and his career or his penchant for not sticking around long in one place, one thing I can say is that his shows were entertaining. When he had political shows, my favorite feature of his was the worst person in the world segment. Someone who recently said or did something bad enough to be highlighted on this special segment. 
It's kind of in a similar vein as what I would call terrible humans. This month's Patreon bonus episode is part one of a two-part bonus series where I share with you my personal top five list of terrible humans. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. wondering about this list. What are my criteria? How did I come up with this list? Eligible humans can be alive or dead, though these will be humans who have made a negative impact on their sphere of influence in some way. Because this is Potstirer Podcast, these will be people involved in politics or religion, though they don't necessarily have to be elected officials. I have limited the scope to the U.S., So no Hitler, Stalin, Mao, or anyone else along those lines. I did not include Trump or Pence, because let's be real, that would have been way too easy. Are there worse humans in the world than the ones who made my list? Of course. Now keep in mind that my list is purely 100% subjective. It's like a list of your least favorite foods, except the people who made my terrible humans list were actually terrible, not simply something you're not feeling. So before we get to the list, I'll share my honorable mentions, or as I probably should say, dishonorable mentions. Dishonorable mentions. Anyone who has worked or still works for the Trump White House. I don't count civil servants or military personnel because they work across administrations and work for the country, not for Trump per se. But I am talking about the folks Trump himself has selected to work for him. This is Donald Trump, who is impulsive, nasty, depraved, and vindictive. They knew what it was when they started working for him, and sticking around is telling. The reason why people tend to get fired by dear leader is because they're horrible, but not horrible enough, like Kirsten Nielsen or Amorosa, or they get more shine than him, like Steve Bannon. Stephen Miller has been getting hyped a lot lately, so he might want to watch his back. Another dishonorable mention goes to Dinesh D'Souza. He would be in my top five, if he didn't constantly get dunked on by historians like Kevin Cruz on Twitter. My cat can dunk on D'Souza. Only his stupidity keeps him out of the top five. Who Said Top Politics had an episode on D'Souza, which was great. I totally loved it and I recommend it. R.I.P. Oops. But D'Souza gets an honorable mention because he's been both a Christian apologist and white supremacy apologist for years. And because he has trafficked in both over the past couple of decades, there are Christians who have bought his arguments for racial conservatism that are devoid of actual facts and historical evidence. Some more also ran terrible humans are Diamond and Silk and Candace Owens. Now, just to be clear, my problem is not with black conservatives in general. 
I may not agree with them politically on most issues, but that's totally fine. We're all individuals and black people are entitled to a diversity of opinion, just like any other group. What I do have a problem with are opportunists, particularly black people who sign on to be used by conservative white people to dismiss their opinions of black people who disagree with them or call them out on their racially regressive attitudes. These are the folks that conservative white people point to and say, well, you should listen to Diamond and Silk. You should listen to Candace Owens. They're black and they know what they're talking about. They're not on the Democrat plantation. And these terrible humans parrot these statements about black people as a whole and co-sign with the stereotypes that the majority of black people are gullible, are being fooled, and somehow these women are an exception. Diamond and Silk in particular perpetuate exaggerated stereotypes of black women in their presentation, which makes them even more palatable to conservative whites. Candace Owens and Diamond and Silk are not opinion leaders. Opinion leaders are people who make a difference by making folks think more deeply about their attitudes, opinions, and assumptions. People like Thomas Sowell, Condoleezza Rice, and Shelby Steele are opinion leaders, even though I disagree with much of their politics. Candace Owens and Diamond and Silk are cheap imitations. Another terrible human who almost made my top five is U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who was Brett Kavanaugh before Brett Kavanaugh. Like Kavanaugh, Thomas is a questionable legal mind who has benefited from his connections and fortuitous timing and became U.S. Supreme Court Justice despite credible accusations of sexual misconduct. Thomas has also worked tirelessly over the years, both before and during his justiceship, to kick the ladder of opportunity out from under the feet of others who share his skin color because of a childhood grudge. You think I'm kidding? Read his autobiography. And last, but most definitely not least, a dishonorable mention goes to my U.S. House Rep, Steve Shabbat, a lifetime politician who revitalized his political career by riding the Tea Party bandwagon. People love him because he's an anti-abortion extremist. He is also all about using the long-standing racial tension in the Cincinnati area to his advantage. In 2006, Shabbat used the 2001 Cincinnati riots that came after a rash of police shootings of unarmed black boys and men and the resulting consent decree in a racially charged dog whistle attack ad against his Democratic opponent, John Cranley. Shabbat has also been a lackey of Donald Trump, parroting Trump's both sides comments after Charlottesville in 2017. His district is heavily, heavily gerrymandered. And even with that ridiculous advantage, he came the closest ever to losing his seat in 2018. I hope that the gerrymandering lawsuit will be favorable and votes in the city of Cincinnati actually count again. So the terrible humans I just mentioned were bad enough, but they didn't quite make the top five. Not for lack of trying. It's just I think the humans that made the top five may have been trying even harder. Number five, Kwame Kilpatrick. Kwame Kilpatrick was the mayor of Detroit from 2002 
to 2008. He was the son of longtime Democratic Congresswoman Carolyn Cheeks Kilpatrick and Bernard Kilpatrick, a politician who was once on the Wayne County Commission and later founded a political consulting firm. So Kwame Kilpatrick came from a well-to-do, solid political pedigree. He graduated from Cass Tech, a Detroit school of choice, which has had a long list of famous and influential alumni, and earned a bachelor's in political science from Florida A&M University. He later got into Michigan politics, having become a state representative succeeding his mother, and after that, mayor of the city of Detroit. Known as the hip-hop mayor, Kilpatrick had a great deal of popular support among Detroiters because he was a young, fresh face with a charismatic silver tongue. He came in with a lot of promise. People both inside and outside Detroit thought this young man with new ideas would be just the one who saves the Motor City. But behind the scenes, he was using the office as a cover for questionable conduct in the city that gave him so much opportunity as his personal piggy bank. His tenure was rife with nepotism. Kilpatrick appointed about 100 friends and family to city positions, which wasn't illegal, but excessive compared to past mayors. He had a city-paid security detail, which I find a bit weird, honestly, since he was the mayor, not the president. But when you have city funds at your disposal and no qualms about spending it like it's your own cash, sure, I guess. Kilpatrick also had personal luxury vehicles on lease using city money and he apparently liked to party. So much so that the city of D.C. refused to give him a detail because he would party all night long when he would visit. In 2002, there was rumored to be an alleged incident at Manoogian Mansion, which is kind of like the White House, but for Detroit mayors. The mayor of Detroit and their family get to live in this mansion by the Detroit River in a historic community while they're in office. So this incident involved an exotic dancer named Tamara Green, who was allegedly slapped by Kilpatrick's wife, Carlita, while giving the mayor a lap dance at a Manoogian mansion party. Green, a mother of three, was murdered months later in a drive-by shooting in 2003. There were allegations that the mayor was involved in her death, seeking to silence her after she wanted compensation for the assault by Carlita. But these allegations have never been proven. Green's murder has never been solved, and probably won't be since much of the evidence and paperwork has since been lost. But it was another sex scandal that eventually brought Kilpatrick down. In 2003, two police officers who cooperated with an internal investigation on Kilpatrick's conduct were fired and they promptly sued the city. During the course of the trial, it was discovered that the mayor was having an affair with his chief of staff, Christine Beatty. His security detail was being paid not only to protect him, but to keep Carlita and the public from finding out about the affair. Kilpatrick and Beatty testified and both denied an affair. The city lost the lawsuit and the plaintiffs were awarded $6.5 million. After the verdict, the mayor blamed race for the outcome. Kilpatrick sought an appeal, but during settlement negotiations, he quickly okayed a higher amount 
to be paid to the plaintiffs, $8.4 million. Come to find out, this was due to evidence found that Kilpatrick and Beatty lied under oath, evidenced by thousands of text messages subpoenaed by the cell phone company. Besides the affair, the text messages provided evidence that city funds were used for romantic excursions, a conspiracy between the two to have one of the whistleblowing officers fired, and a secret deal, which would keep the plaintiffs and their attorneys from divulging the existence of the text messages. The city demanded that Kilpatrick pay back the $8.4 million the city lost, but he claimed he had already paid back the money through, quote, hard work for the city, end quote. The revelations led to several criminal charges, including a number of perjury and conspiracy counts against both Kilpatrick and Beatty. Beatty took a plea and spent 120 days in jail. Kilpatrick also took a plea and spent four months in jail, as well as he agreed to pay restitution to the city of Detroit, surrender his state pension, and resign as mayor. Later, other criminal wrongdoings surfaced, including illegal kickbacks to city contractors, tax evasion, and other financial crimes. In 2013, in a federal trial, he was found guilty of several charges, including tax evasion, racketeering, extortion, and mail fraud, and he was sentenced to 28 years in prison. He sits in prison to this day. But Kilpatrick didn't only cost the struggling city money because of his sex scandal cover-up, but because of a gamble he made with the city's pension fund. In 2005, Kilpatrick engineered a $1.44 billion pension bill, which was designed to eliminate a pension shortfall, that involved borrowing money to fund pensions with steady interest rates secured by Wall Street. It was a complicated deal, with many places where it could break down, but at the time, the deal was considered ingenious. Then, the 2008 recession happened, which hit Detroit hard and led to a downgrade in credit rating. This downgrade increased the money they owed, and they later defaulted, and by 2013, they owed $2.5 billion from the fallout of the $1.44 billion deal. This was one of the reasons the city found itself filing for Chapter 9 bankruptcy, long after Kilpatrick has served as mayor. Kwame Kilpatrick took advantage of a city, his city, that was struggling and did his part to bleed it dry. Then, when he was held accountable for his actions, he leaned into a racial narrative for the decision, perpetuating the long open wounds of the region's racial discontent. While it may be true that there have been white politicians who have done similar things and have not been punished, there have been white politicians, like the late Jim Traficant, who was a politician from Youngstown, who have. And, even if that weren't the case, it doesn't mean Kilpatrick shouldn't have been held responsible. To spend taxpayer money, especially in a city that is struggling with a great deal of poverty, and then give the city of Detroit more bad press and plunge it further into despair and ruin because of pure, unadulterated self-interest. That gave Kwame Kilpatrick the edge as a terrible human that makes my list. Number four, Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos is the U.S. Secretary of Education. 
She was born into a great deal of wealth. Her father, Edgar Prince, was one of the wealthiest men in Michigan. She attended a private Christian high school and earned a business economics degree from Calvin College, a Christian college in Grand Rapids. She then married Dick DeVos, heir to the Amway fortune and former CEO of the company. Amway, if you don't know, is a multi-level marketing company, or MLM. Pretty much, it's a legal pyramid scheme. Stranger Still did an excellent episode on MLMs if you'd like to know more about how they work. The DeVos family has made a great deal of money not only from Amway, but from a myriad of investments in biomedical and other industries. But in any case, Betsy DeVos is clearly a very, very wealthy woman who has lived a life of privilege, and she knows it, and has no shame about using that wealth and privilege to her advantage. In 1997, she wrote an op-ed in the Capitol Hill newspaper Roll Call, where she said, quote, My family is the largest single contributor of soft money to the National Republican Party. I have decided, however, to stop taking offense at the suggestion that we are buying influence. Now, I simply concede the point. We expect to foster a conservative governing philosophy consisting of limited government and respect for traditional American virtues. We expect a return on our investment. We expect a good and honest government. Furthermore, we expect the Republican Party to use the money to promote these policies and, yes, to win elections. End quote. And boy, has that money garnered influence. DeVos has chaired the Michigan Republican Party and served on the Republican National Committee. One of DeVos's pet causes has been charter schools. Charter schools are schools run by private entities, such as corporations and nonprofits, that operate under a charter granted by state governments and are publicly funded. These schools, which are free for students to attend, have been touted as alternatives to public schools for students whose families cannot afford tuition at private schools. Supporters claim that charter schools have better outcomes than public schools and it allows for low-income families to have education choices previously reserved for well-off families, while opponents claim that charter schools siphon resources from public schools and are not regulated rigorously to ensure they are delivering the results they claim. In Michigan, charter schools have proliferated as education funds have been diverted from public schools to charter schools. This has resulted in increased strain on public schools, which then find themselves having to educate a disproportionate number of children with special needs and behavioral challenges, since charter schools, in reality, do often pick their students, as well as a number of public school closures and less actual choice in low-income areas. The lack of charter school regulations have meant that charter schools with extremely low test scores continuously get their charters renewed and continue to operate, delivering poor results for students. This is especially a huge deal in places like Detroit, where almost half the student population attends charter schools. And in some areas, a charter school is the only neighborhood option. Before being tapped for education secretary, Betsy DeVos served as chair for the school choice group American Federation for Children and was on the board of a number of other school choice and other education-related organizations. 
The DeVos family has poured a great deal of money and time into charter school advocacy, though not charter school accountability. So while DeVos isn't directly causing poor performing charter schools, she and her family's advocacy has helped charter schools escape accountability and has made the problems with children's education in Michigan so much worse. DeVos has taken her anti-public school agenda to her post as education secretary, working to take away resources for sexual assault survivors on college campuses, removing accountability for for-profit colleges, aiming to increase the terms of repayment for student loan borrowers and reducing avenues for student loan forgiveness, removing protections for transgender students, and rescinding Obama-era regulations prohibiting racially biased school discipline policies. On the latter, in DeVos's report outlining reasons for rescinding these regulations, she cited a particular study multiple times. This study was from University of Cincinnati criminal justice researcher John Paul Wright, who has brought back genetics and biology to explain criminal behavior. Even though this approach has fallen out of favor over the last several decades due to its ties to eugenics and racial superiority theories, Wright has stated, quote, Those who pursue this line of research get branded as racists and even eugenicists. We have personally experienced hostile receptions when presenting our work in these areas at professional conferences and have been excoriated in the anonymous review process when attempting to publish our papers, end quote. You know, maybe there's a reason for that. In Wright's study that DeVos cited, he argues that Black children are simply more likely to have problematic behaviors from birth that lead them to be disciplined more harshly than white students in schools. Alternative theories, such as implicit bias or stereotype threat, were not considered. While the study was peer-reviewed, his work generally falls outside the mainstream for the reasons I just mentioned. So essentially, DeVos used Wright's study in her report to make the argument that the disparities in school discipline weren't due to racial bias, but were due to Black students being inherently bad to the bone, despite other peer-reviewed studies that would say otherwise. Betsy DeVos, on a mission to destroy public education in the U.S., and kill equal opportunity, one dollar, one policy at a time, befitting a terrible human that belongs on this list. Number three, Jerry Falwell Sr. While Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, is pretty atrocious for his undying support for Donald Trump and his political statements that run contrary to the faith he claims to support. He could never hope to fill the cavernous, vile shoes of his charlatan, terrible human father, Jerry Sr. The late Jerry Falwell was a fundamentalist Southern Baptist preacher, televangelist, and the leader of the moral majority, a political action lobby whose peak was in the 1980s, that pushed for an anti-abortion, pro-conservative Christian theocratic agenda. While Falwell died in 2007, he is well known to this day for his controversial beliefs, from support for South African apartheid to opposition to Teletubbies. He believed Teletubbies, particularly Tinky Winky, supported a gay agenda. 
But his most controversial statement was related to 9-11. On the 700 Club with another religious charlatan, Pat Robertson, Falwell said, quote, I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you help this happen, end quote. Now, you would think this is bad enough. And for that, Jerry Falwell has definitely earned his spot on my top terrible humans list. But wait, there's more. There are many reasons why white evangelicalism today is politically enmeshed and morally bankrupt. Much of it is because it started out that way. Many of the denominations and churches that comprise white evangelicalism have a history of being on the wrong side of slavery and Jim Crow segregation. But guys like Falwell took this moral bankruptcy and political entanglement to the next level. And speaking of segregation, this is how Falwell got into politics in the first place. He had been a longtime segregationist and detractor of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1950s and 60s. And as a matter of fact, Falwell had this to say about Brown versus Board of Education, the U.S. Supreme Court decision in 1954 that desegregated public schools. Quote, If Chief Justice Warren and his associates had known God's word and had desired to do the Lord's will, I am quite confident that the 1954 decision would never have been made. The facilities should be separate. When God has drawn a line of distinction, we should not attempt to cross that line. End quote. Due to racial integration in the South in the 1960s and 70s, many Southern white families were searching for alternatives to public schools that would keep their kids from going to school with black people. Many whites-only evangelical Christian schools popped up in the South to meet this demand. Because private schools were exempt from integration orders, these schools were not required to integrate. These schools were referred to as segregation academies. But while these schools were private, they benefited from tax-exempt status as church-affiliated organizations. And in the cases of colleges and universities, were eligible to receive government-backed financial aid from students who attended. But the decision in the Green v. Connolly U.S. Supreme Court case in 1972 stated that institutions practicing segregation could not be considered charitable institutions and therefore not qualified for tax-exempt status. So in the mid to late 1970s, these segregation academies were told by the IRS to integrate or lose their benefits. Gary Falwell ran a K-12 fundamentalist Christian school, Liberty Christian Academy, that started out as a segregation academy in the late 1960s, but later integrated. But Falwell was also an advocate of segregation academies generally, and he was angry at government for expecting schools taking government benefits to integrate. In 1975, the IRS went after Bob Jones University, a conservative Christian college in South Carolina. BJU started out as a whites-only school that allowed married black people in 1971, 
and unmarried black people in 1975, but they would not admit students in mixed-race marriages, and they did not allow students, faculty, or staff to interracially date. That's what led to the IRS decision and ensuing years-long court battle that BJU lost. They retained their anti-interracial relationship policies until 2000. Yes, 2000. And they regained their tax-exempt status in 2014. In the 1970s, Falwell was squarely in BJU's corner and wanted to do something about their loss of tax-exempt status at the hands of the IRS. So in the late 1970s, he joined forces with Republican activist Paul Ryrick, who later helped found the Heritage Foundation, an extremely influential conservative think tank. I've talked about them in previous episodes. Weirich was interested in creating a viable conservative movement. The catalyst was the battle against desegregating whites-only private schools in the South, which is how he started collaborating with Falwell in the first place. But to make the movement more viable outside the South, the men eventually chose the abortion issue. I get more in-depth about this way back in Episode 8, the Compromise episode, but pretty much abortion was the cover issue that they used to get the moral majority and the religious right generally started, but the real reason behind all of it was racial segregation. The moral majority was founded in 1979 to advocate for conservative political causes and influence government. Their pet issues included opposition to abortion in all cases, the Equal Rights Amendment, gay rights, as well as support for school prayer and what they considered the traditional family unit. They also opposed the agreements coming out of the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, sessions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union aimed at arms control. The moral majority also looked to actively convert non-Christians, including Jewish people, to Christianity. The moral majority backed Ronald Reagan for president in 1980 and 1984, and they were very influential in both of Reagan's campaigns. Reagan, in turn, appointed Reverend Robert Billings, who was the first executive director of the moral majority, to be the campaign's religious advisor, and later placed him in a position within the Department of Education, which called back to the moral majority's original purpose fighting against government forcing Christian schools to desegregate. While the Moore majority went into a decline in the mid to late 1980s and dissolved in 1989, the organization and Falwell were instrumental in the roots of the religious right. Even the racially conservative, white supremacist sympathizing aspect of today's white evangelicals, the key constituency for Donald Trump, is rooted in the religious right politics Falwell helped to propagate from a backwoods regional remnant of the Civil War to this powerful force that has helped send the U.S. into a free fall towards theocracy. And for that, Falwell was a terrible human and has more than earned a spot on this list. Number two, L. Brooks Patterson. people who have such a strong personal vendetta against another person that they will go through any lengths to harm not only them, but those who have contributed to that person's success, with collateral damage that stretches across populations and generations. 
Donald Trump has made every effort to roll back all the progress President Barack Obama made simply because Obama made a joke at Trump's expense at a White House correspondence dinner. Before the petty revenge of Donald Trump, there was L. Brooks Patterson. There are many reasons why the Detroit area has struggled the past several decades to reach its full potential, and one of those reasons is L. Brooks Patterson. Oakland County is the county just to the north of Detroit, housing many of its wealthy suburbs, such as Bluefield Hills, Rochester Hills, Beverly Hills, Farmington, and so on. Now, Al Brooks Patterson started out as Oakland County Prosecutor in the early 1970s before becoming Oakland County Executive in the early 90s. While Prosecutor, he focused on actions such as cutting off welfare to women who had children out of wedlock. Great dude. But Patterson soon found a politician he would hate for life. And it wasn't anyone in his county. Coleman Young was the mayor of Detroit from 1974 to 1994. He was the longest-serving mayor, and notably, the first black mayor of the city. When he became mayor, he was dealing with a city that had lost a flood of white residents to white flight, lost much of his tax base, and was coping badly with the effects of the 1967 Detroit riots. Crime and police brutality were up, and Coleman Young, a World War II veteran, union organizer, and state senator, was elected with high hopes. While he was elected as a left-wing Democrat, he was the most fiscally conservative of Detroit's modern mayors, keeping Detroit's budget balanced by raising taxes and cutting services. Even in lean economic times, Detroit was in the black, which hadn't been the case since Young's tenure. In his inaugural speech in 1974, Young said, quote, we can no longer afford the luxury of hatred and racial division. What is good for the black people of this city is good for the white people of this city. What is good for the rich people in this city is good for the poor people in this city. What is good for those who live in the suburbs is good for those who live in the central city. We must build a new people-oriented police department. And then you and they can help us drive the criminals from our streets. I issue open warnings now to all dope pushers, to all ripoff artists, to all muggers. It's time to leave Detroit. Hit 8 Mile Road. And I don't give a damn if they're black or white. If they wear superfly suits or blue uniforms with silver badges, hit the road. End quote. This speech was meant to be an appeal for racial unity in the wake of the racial strife in Detroit and a call for criminals, whether they be civilian criminals or bad cops, to leave the city. Eight Mile Road is the street on the northern border of Detroit, separating it from suburbs in neighboring Oakland and Macomb counties. Now, if you look at the speech in context, that would all make sense. But Elbrooks Patterson, then Oakland County Prosecutor, spun Young's speech in least charitable, most adversarial, most racially charged way possible. Patterson took it as a call for criminals to go to Oakland County and for white residents to leave the city. So Patterson's response? Drop dead, Detroit. He also said, quote, What we're going to do is turn Detroit into an Indian reservation 
where we herd all the Indians into the city, build a fence around it, and then throw in the blankets and corn. End quote. Racist statements like this, not only alluding to the predominantly black Detroit residents, but the killing off of Native Americans earlier in American history, are pretty vile, but par for the course for old Brooks. Patterson, while Oakland County prosecutor, vigorously opposed school busing between Detroit and its suburbs, which was aimed at racially integrating Metro Detroit's public schools. Patterson said, quote, If favoring the neighborhood school and opposing the attempt to make school children pawns of the federal court social experiment makes me a racist, then I plead guilty. If opposing Coleman Young's $600 million Detroit subway, an extravagant and ineffective testament to his ego, makes me a racist, then I plead guilty. If publicly stating that future economic bailouts for Detroit are at an end until Detroit gets its own fiscal house in order makes me a racist, then I plead guilty. End quote. Keep in mind that, again, Coleman Young was the most fiscally responsible mayor Detroit had in its recent history and was the only one to keep Detroit in the black. Now, when Patterson became Oakland County Executive in 1992, this was at the tail end of Young's tenure. And it was Patterson's mission to make not only Young, but Detroit and its residents pay. Patterson has been the cog in the machine that has kept the city and suburbs on separate public transportation systems, opposing every proposal to merge Detroit's DOT and the suburban smart system. And he has not bypassed any opportunity to rip on the city of Detroit. Quote, I used to say to my kids, first of all, there's no reason for you to go to Detroit. We've got restaurants out here. They don't even have movie theaters in Detroit, not one. I can't imagine finding something in Detroit that we don't have in spades here, except for live sports. We don't have baseball, football. For that, fine, get in and get out. But park right next to the venue. Spend that extra 20 or 30 bucks. And before you go to Detroit, you get your gas out here. You do not, do not, under any circumstances, stop in Detroit at a gas station. That's just a call for a carjacking. End quote. Patterson hasn't exactly gotten any better as he's gotten older either. Fighting Syrian refugee resettlement in Oakland County during the Obama administration and threatening a lawsuit to keep them out of his county, citing fears about vetting in Islamic terror. He has also worked to siphon all economic growth from Detroit into Oakland County, which has grown to be a very wealthy county. His county's growth has been off of Detroit's back like a parasite, not acknowledging that to have peak growth as a region, you have to have a healthy city. But this reality has always been lost on Patterson, who sees the growth in his county and seems to think that this growth and Detroit's decline has proven him right. But with major corporations like Amazon bypassing the region, in great part because of its uneven, segregated pattern of growth, which has limited its base of potential workers, and lack of viable public transportation, his grudge match with Detroit is hurting everyone in the region, including his own constituents. The reasons for Detroit's decline are complicated, but Patterson has been more than willing to leech off its decline and rejoice in its hard times. 
all this over his twisting of the words of a man who has been dead for over 20 years. But 80-year-old Elbrooks Patterson, like most evil people, is still alive and kicking, and will probably live forever. Postscript Since this episode was first released, Elbrooks Patterson died August 3rd, 2019, at the age of 80. Now, who could be worse than Elbrooks Patterson? The man who was the first person who got the title of Terrible Human on this podcast. Number one, Ronald Reagan. If you've listened to some recent episodes of Potstirer Podcast, you might not be too surprised that President Ronald Reagan made it to number one. Reagan was a B-movie actor and California governor that became president of the United States. Reagan ushered in a conservative revolution that eventually gave us Donald Trump and assisted the older generations who voted for him with handing off a world to future generations such as millennials that was much worse off than in generations past. Just as despicable as Trump, just less impulsive and more politically savvy. Reagan opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and he supported what he called states' rights and individual rights, or in other words, a right for the South to be segregated. When Reagan ran for president in 1980, he appeared in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner, three civil rights workers, were murdered in cold blood in 1964. Reagan made a speech supporting states' rights and curtailing federal government power. This was no misstep. This was a racist dog whistle. And as I mentioned in my series on Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as president, Reagan signed into law the King holiday to give himself cover as he slashed civil rights protections for people of color. Reagan also criminalized the crack epidemic in sharp contrast to how the opioid epidemic is approached today, the only key difference being the race of the users. When Reagan was president, he was not immune to scandal, such as Iran-Contra, but escaped punishment with the help of his friends in high places. He also did a number of other things that made him pretty bad, like union-busting and signing into law bank deregulation that led to the savings and loan crisis lasting from 1986 through 1995. But here are a couple of things that really make him a terrible human. Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, was first discovered in 1981. In HIV, the virus leading to AIDS was discovered two years later. The groups of people that were disproportionately affected at the time were gay men and Haitian immigrants. Later, hemophiliacs and intravenous drug users were found to have AIDS in higher numbers compared to the rest of the population. But in those early days, AIDS was stigmatized because of the initial connection to gay men and was called the gay plague. The small outbreaks in the U.S. turned into hundreds and then thousands of people who would die of complications of the virus. In the 1980s, AIDS was considered pretty much a death sentence, as the treatments that exist now weren't available then. 
Reagan was president during the early days of the AIDS crisis, yet he and his administration ignored the crisis. According to the short documentary, When AIDS Was Funny, Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, considered AIDS to be a laughing matter, making homophobic jokes when a reporter asked about the epidemic that had already claimed so many lives. Speaks really gives Sarah Huckabee Sanders a run for her money. Reagan himself wouldn't mention AIDS publicly until 1985. At that point, thousands of people had died in the U.S. of AIDS complications. And even then, Reagan only broke his silence on AIDS to say it was reasonable for parents to refuse to allow their children to have contact with people living with AIDS. Mind you, by this point, the Centers for Disease Control had already come out with a statement that said, quote, casual person-to-person contact as would occur among schoolchildren appears to pose no risk, end quote. So Reagan either knew or should have known that just being around people with HIV AIDS wouldn't expose them to the virus, but he didn't care. In later speeches on AIDS, he talked about allocating funds towards HIV AIDS research, but insisted on the need for abstinence and his opposition to sex education, believing that ethical values would keep people from getting sick. He did not allow his Surgeon General to come out with an AIDS prevention statement until 1987. And at that point, 50,000 people were known to be living with AIDS, and about 20,000 people had died. When Reagan finally allowed it, there was an expectation that this Surgeon General statement would be in line with Reagan's rhetoric about ethical behavior and abstinence. But it wasn't that. C. Everett Koop, the Surgeon General, came out with a statement encouraging the use of condoms and sex education as early as third grade and had pamphlets mailed out to American households nationwide. This information was common sense and pragmatic, but at odds with opinions in much of the Reagan administration. There are thousands of deaths that could have been prevented if only Reagan and his administration took HIV AIDS seriously from the beginning, instead of ignoring the problem, likely because of who was initially at highest risk of contracting the virus. Sickening. Another major thing that made Reagan a terrible human is how he handled mental health care. While governor of California in 1967, he had begun to phase out publicly funded mental hospitals, shifting care from these hospitals to nursing facilities and group homes. A policy called deinstitutionalization Part of this was because of Reagan's distrust of psychiatry as communist, which seemed to be what he labeled pretty much anything or anyone he didn't like. But part of it may have been because of money, since a number of these privately run for-profit facilities who were getting paid to house these people who were mentally ill and being thrown out of public institutions were giving Reagan political contributions. But in any case, the results of deinstitutionalization in California were disastrous. It led to a spike in homelessness, violence, and incarceration. And Reagan, for his part, decided to take this failed experiment to the White House. When he became President of the United States in 1981, Reagan discontinued a program that had been signed into law by President Jimmy Carter, 
which would have continued the federal funding provided to mental institutions and mental health facilities. This led to the closure of mental institutions, mental hospitals, and mental health facilities nationally, which led to an increase in homelessness in major cities and a lack of mental health resources across the country. The institutionalization nationwide also led to the proliferation of for-profit board and care facilities that abused their mentally ill residents and residents with special needs. It also led to an increase in violent crime, including a rash of mass shootings throughout the 1980s and the attempted murder of Reagan himself by John Hinckley, who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. This lack of resources for mental health and the consequences have persisted to this day. Reagan's tacit commitment to white supremacy and his administration's dismantling of mental health services serve as the foundation for issues we encounter in American society today, including violent suicides, mass shootings including school shootings, and white supremacist terror. These are issues that are tearing our country apart. Donald Trump is the end result, but Ronald Reagan was a key factor leading to the Trump presidency. When people die, they say, don't speak ill of the dead. When famous people die, even if they're questionable, I try to at least focus on some of the positive they've done in the wake of their death. Human beings are complicated. Monday morning quarterbacking their lives can come later, but if they're that bad, I just don't say anything. I don't ridicule them in social media. I don't drag them to my friends and family while the body is still warm. I give it time out of respect for the family. That has happened all of one time. When someone died that was so shitty, I was silent. When Reagan died, I was silent. I was silent as people lauded his presidency and his legacy and spoke of him in fond, glowing terms. I was silent because there was nothing about his presidential legacy to truly celebrate. And at the time, that was even before seeing a fuller scope of the damage his policies have done to our country. President Ronald Reagan was a terrible human for a lot of reasons. I'm sure I didn't include all of them. But truly, Reagan gets the top spot on my terrible humans list because of all the blood on his hands. Thank you so much for listening to Pastor Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to pastorpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. Subscribing gets you new episodes once they come out so you don't have to wait. If you enjoy Potstar Podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. And if you want to hear my takes on political and social issues in real time, check me out on Twitter and follow me there at PotsterCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. Thank you.